Part two, chapter five of Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert, translated by Eleanor Mark Saverling. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part two, chapter five. It was a Sunday in February, an afternoon when the snow was falling. They had all, Monsieur and Madame Bovary, Homais and Monsieur Léon, gone to see a yarn mill that was being built in the valley a mile and a half from Yonville. The druggist had taken Napoleon and Utterly to give them some exercise, and Justin accompanied them, carrying the umbrellas on his shoulder. Nothing, however, could be less curious than this curiosity. A great piece of waste ground on which, pell-mell, amid a mass of sand and stones, were a few brake-wheels, already rusty, surrounded by a quadrangular building pierced by a number of little windows. The building was unfinished. The sky could be seen through the joists of the roofing. Attached to the stop-plank of the gable, a bunch of straw mixed with corn-ears fluttered its trickled ribbons in the wind. Homais was talking. He explained to the company the future importance of this establishment, computed the strength of the floorings, the thickness of the walls, and regretted extremely not having a yardstick such as Monsieur Binet possessed for his own special use. Emma, who had taken his arm, bent lightly against his shoulder, and she looked at the sun's disk shedding afar through the mist his pale splendour. She turned. Charles was there. His cap was drawn down over his eyebrows, and his two thick lips were trembling, which added a look of stupidity to his face. His very back, his calm back, was irritating to behold, and she saw written upon his coat all the platitude of the bearer. While she was considering him thus, tasting in her irritation a sort of depraved pleasure, Léon made a step forward. The cold that made him pale seemed to add a more gentle languor to his face. Between his cravat and his neck, the somewhat looser collar of his shirt showed the skin. The lobe of his ear looked out from beneath a lock of hair, and his large blue eyes, raised to the clouds, seemed to Emma more limpid and more beautiful than those mountain lakes where the heavens are mirrored. "'Wretched boy!' suddenly cried the chemist. And he ran to his son, who had just precipitated himself into a heap of lime in order to whiten his boots. At the reproaches with which he was being overwhelmed, Napoleon began to roar, while Justin dried his shoes with a wisp of straw. But a knife was wanted. Charles offered his. Ah, oh, she said to herself, he carried a knife in his pocket, like a peasant. The hoar-frost was falling, and they turned back to Yonville. In the evening, Madame Bovary did not go to her neighbours, and when Charles had left and she felt herself alone, the comparison re-began with the clearness of a sensation almost actual, and with that lengthening of perspective which memory gives to things. Looking from her bed at the clean fire that was burning, she still saw, as she had down there, Léon standing up with one hand behind his cane, and with the other holding Attali, who was quietly sucking a piece of ice. She thought him charming. She could not tear herself away from him. She recalled his other attitudes on other days, the words he had spoken, the sound of his voice, his whole person, and she repeated, pouting out her lips as if for a kiss, 
Yes, charming, charming. Is he not in love? she asked herself. But with whom? With me? All the proofs arose before her at once. Her heart leapt. The flame of the fire threw a joyous light upon the ceiling. She turned on her back, stretching out her arms. Then began the eternal lamentations. Oh, if heaven had not willed it, and why not? What prevented it? When Charles came home at midnight, she seemed to have just awakened, and as he made a noise undressing, she complained of a headache, then asked carelessly what had happened that evening. Monsieur Léon, he said, went to his room early. She could not help smiling, and she fell asleep, her soul filled with a new delight. The next day, at dusk, she received a visit from Monsieur Leroux, the draper. He was a man of ability, was this shopkeeper. Born a Gascon, but bred a Norman, he grafted upon his southern volubility the cunning of the cauchois. His fat, flabby, beardless face seemed dyed by a decoction of licorice, and his white hair made even more vivid the keen brilliance of his small black eyes. No one knew what he had been formerly. A peddler, said some, a banker at Routeau, according to others. What was certain was that he made complex calculations in his head that would have frightened Binet himself. Polite to obsequiousness, he always held himself with his back bent in the position of one who bows or who invites. After leaving at the door his hat surrounded with crepe, he put down a green bandbox on the table and began by complaining to Madame, with many civilities, that he should have remained till that day without gaining her confidence. A poor shop like his was not made to attract a fashionable lady, he emphasised the words. Yet she had only to command, and he would undertake to provide her with anything she might wish, either in haberdashery or linen, millinery or fancy goods. For he went to town regularly four times a month. He was connected with the best houses. You could speak of him at the Trois Frères or the Barbe d'Or at the Grand Sauvage. All these gentlemen knew him as well as the insides of their pockets. Today, then... He had come to show Madame, in passing, various articles he happened to have, thanks to a most rare opportunity, and he pulled out half a dozen embroidered collars from the box. Madame Bovary examined them. I do not require anything, she said. Then Monsieur Leroux delicately exhibited three Algerian scarves, several packets of English needles, a pair of straw slippers, and finally four egg-cups in coconut wood carved in open-work by convicts. Then, with both hands on the table, his neck stretched out, his figure bent forward, open-mouthed, he watched Emma's look, who was walking up and down undecided amid these goods. From time to time, as if to remove some dust, he filliped with his nail the silk of the scarf spread out at full length, and they rustled with a little noise, making in the green twilight the gold spangles of their tissue scintillate like little stars. How much are they? A mere nothing, he replied, a mere nothing, but there's no hurry, whenever it's convenient. We're not Jews. She reflected for a few moments, and ended by again declining Monsieur Leroux's offer. He replied quite unconcernedly, Very well, we shall understand one another by and by. I have always got on with ladies, if I didn't with my own. 
Emma smiled. I wanted to tell you, he went on good-naturedly after his joke, that it isn't the money I should trouble about. Why, I could give you some if need be. She made a gesture of surprise. Ah, he said quickly and in a low voice, I shouldn't have to go far to find you some. Rely on that. And he began asking after Père Tellier, the proprietor of the Café Francais, whom Monsieur Bovary was then attending. What's the matter with Père Tellier? He coughs so that he shakes the whole house, and I'm afraid he'll soon want a deal covering rather than a flannel vest. He was such a rake as a young man. These sort of people, madame, have not the least regularity. He's burnt up with brandy. Still, it's sad all the same to see an acquaintance go off. And while he fastened up his box, he discoursed about the doctor's patience. It's the weather, no doubt, he said, looking frowningly at the floor, that causes these illnesses. I, too, don't feel the thing. One of these days I shall even have to consult the doctor for a pain I have in my back. Well, good-bye, Madame Bovary. At your service, your very humble servant. And he closed the door gently. Emma had her dinner served in her bedroom on a tray by the fireside. She was a long time over it. Everything was well with her. How good I was, she said to herself, thinking of the scarves. She heard some steps on the stairs. It was Léon. She got up and took from the chest of drawers the first pile of dusters to be hemmed. When he came in, she seemed very busy. The conversation languished. Madame Bovary gave it up every few minutes, whilst he himself seemed quite embarrassed. Seated on a low chair near the fire, he turned round in his fingers the ivory thimble-case. She stitched on, or from time to time turned down the hem of the cloth with her nail. She did not speak. He was silent, captivated by her silence, as he would have been by her speech. Poor fellow, she thought. How have I displeased her? he asked himself. At last, however, Léon said that he should have one of these days to go to Rouen on some office business. Your music subscription is out. Am I to renew it? No, she replied. Why? Because. And, pursing her lips, she slowly drew a long stitch of grey thread. This work irritated Léon. It seemed to roughen the ends of her fingers. A gallant phrase came into his head, but he did not risk it. Then you are giving it up, he went on. What? she asked hurriedly. Music? Ah, yes. Have I not my house to look after, my husband to attend to? A thousand things, in fact. Many duties that must be considered first. She looked at the clock. Charles was late. Then she affected anxiety. Two or three times she even repeated, He is so good. The clerk was fond of Monsieur Bovary. But this tenderness on his behalf astonished him unpleasantly. Nevertheless, he took up on his praises, which he said everyone was singing, especially the chemist. Ah, he is a good fellow, continued Emma. Certainly, replied the clerk. And he began talking of Madame Homais, whose very untidy appearance generally made them laugh. What does it matter, interrupted Emma. A good housewife does not trouble about her appearance. Then she relapsed into silence. It was the same on the following days. Her talks, her manners, everything changed. 
She took interest in the housework, went to church regularly, and looked after her servant with more severity. She took Berta from nurse. When visitors called, Felicite brought her in, and Madame Bovary undressed her to show off her limbs. She declared she adored children. This was her consolation, her joy, her passion, and she accompanied her caresses with lyrical outbursts which would have reminded anyone but the Yonville people of Sachet in Notre-Dame de Paris. When Charles came home, he found his slippers put to warm near the fire. His waistcoat now never wanted lining, nor his shirt buttons, and it was quite a pleasure to see in the cupboard the nightcaps arranged in piles of the same height. She no longer grumbled, as formerly, at taking a turn in the garden. What he proposed was always done, although she did not understand the wishes to which she submitted without a murmur. And when Léon saw him by his fireside after dinner, his two hands on his stomach, his two feet on the fender, his two cheeks red with feeding, his eyes moist with happiness, the child crawling along the carpet, and this woman with the slender waist who came behind his armchair to kiss his forehead, what madness he said to himself and how to reach her and thus she seemed so virtuous and inaccessible to him that he lost all hope even the faintest but by this renunciation he placed her on an extraordinary pinnacle to him she stood outside those fleshly attributes from which he had nothing to obtain and in his heart she rose ever and became farther removed from him after the magnificent manner of an apotheosis that is taking wing it was one of those pure feelings that do not interfere with life that are cultivated because they are rare and whose loss would afflict more than their passion rejoices emma grew thinner her cheeks paler her face longer with her black hair, her large eyes, her aquiline nose, her bird-like walk, and always silent now, did she not seem to be passing through life, scarcely touching it, and to bear on her brow the vague impress of some divine destiny? She was so sad and so calm, at once so gentle and so reserved, that near her one felt oneself seized by an icy charm as we shudder in churches at the perfume of the flowers mingled with the cold of the marble. The others even did not escape from this seduction. The chemist said, She is a woman of great parts who wouldn't be misplaced in a sub-prefecture. The housewives admired her economy, the patients her politeness, the poor her charity. But... She was eaten up with desires, with rage, with hate. That dress with the narrow folds hid a distracted fear, of whose torment those chaste lips said nothing. She was in love with Léon, and sought solitude that she might with the more ease delight in his image. The sight of his form troubled the voluptuousness of this mediation. Emma thrilled at the sound of his step. Then, in his presence, the emotion subsided, and afterwards there remained to her only an immense astonishment that ended in sorrow. Léon did not know that when he left her in despair, she rose after he had gone to see him in the street. She concerned herself about his comings and goings. She watched his face. She invented quite a history to find an excuse for going to his room. 
The chemist's wife seemed happy to her to sleep under the same roof, and her thoughts constantly centred upon this house, like the lion door pigeons who came there to dip their red feet and white wings in its gutters. But the more Emma recognised her love, the more she crushed it down, that it might not be evident, that she might make it less. She would have liked Leon to guess it, and she imagined chances, catastrophes that should facilitate this. What restrained her was, no doubt, idleness and fear, and a sense of shame also. She thought she had repulsed him too much, that the time was past, that all was lost. Then pride and joy of being able to say to herself, I am virtuous, and to look at herself in the glass, taking resigned poses, consoled her a little for the sacrifice she believed she was making. Then the lusts of the flesh the longing for money and the melancholy of passion all blended themselves into one suffering, and instead of turning her thoughts from it, she clave to it the more, urging herself to pain and seeking everywhere occasion for it. She was irritated by an ill-served dish or by a half-open door, bewailed the velvet she had not, the happiness she had missed, her too exalted dreams, her narrow home. What exasperated her was that Charles did not seem to notice her anguish. His conviction that he was making her happy seemed to her an imbecile insult, and his sureness on this point ingratitude. For whose sake, then, was she virtuous? Was it not for him the obstacle to all felicity, the cause of all misery, and, as it were, the sharp clasp of that complex strap that bucked her in on all sides? On him alone, then, she concentrated all the various hatreds that resulted from her boredom, and every effort to diminish only augmented it. For this useless trouble was added to the other reasons for despair, and contributed still more to the separation between them. Her own gentleness to herself made her rebel against him. Domestic mediocrity drove her to lewd fancies, marriage tenderness to adulterous desires. She would have liked Charles to beat her, that she might have a better right to hate him, to revenge herself upon him. She was surprised sometimes at the atrocious conjectures that came into her thoughts, and she had to go on smiling, to hear repeated to her at all hours that she was happy, to pretend to be happy, to let it be believed. Yet she had loathing of this hypocrisy. She was seized with the temptation to flee somewhere with Léon, to try a new life, but at once a vague chasm full of darkness opened within her soul. Besides, he no longer loves me, she thought. What is to become of me? What help is to be hoped for? What consolation? What solace? She was left broken, breathless, inert, sobbing in a low voice with flowing tears. Why don't you tell Master? the servant asked her when she came in during these crises. It is the nerve, said Emma. Do not speak to him of it. It would worry him. Ah, yes, Felicite went on. You are just like Lagarine, Père Guerin's daughter, the fisherman Apollo that I used to know at Dieppe before I came to you. She was so sad, so sad, to see her standing upright on the threshold of her house. She seemed to you like a winding sheet spread out before the door. Her illness, it appears, was a kind of fog that she had in her head, and the doctors could not do anything, nor the priest either. When she was taken too bad, she went off quite alone to the seashore, 
so that the customs officer going his rounds often found her lying flat on her face, crying on the shingle. Then, after her marriage, it went off, they say. But with me, replied Emma, it was after marriage that it began. End of part two, chapter five. Part two, chapter six of Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert, translated by Eleanor Marx Aveling. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part two, chapter six. One evening, when the window was open and she, sitting by it, had been watching Lesty Boudoir the beadle trimming the box, she suddenly heard the Angelus ringing. It was the beginning of April, when the primroses are in bloom, and a warm wind blows over the garden beds newly turned, and the gardens, like women, seem to be getting ready for the summer fates. Through the bars of the arbour and away beyond, the river could be seen in the fields, meandering through the grass in wandering curves. The evening vapours rose between the leafless poplars, touching their outlines with a violet tint, paler and more transparent than a subtle gauze caught athwart their branches. In the distance cattle moved about, neither their steps nor their lowing could be heard, and the bell, still ringing through the air, kept up its peaceful lamentation. With this repeated tinkling the thoughts of the young woman lost themselves in old memories of her youth and school days. She remembered the great candlestick that rose above the vases full of flowers on the altar, and the tabernacle with its small columns. She would have liked to be once more lost in the long line of white veils, marked off here and there by the stuffed black hoods of the good sisters bending over their prie-dieu. At Mass on Sundays, when she looked up, she saw the gentle face of the Virgin amid the blue smoke of the rising incense. Then she was moved. She felt herself weak and quite deserted, like the down of a bird whirled by the tempest, and it was unconsciously that she went towards the church, included to no matter what devotions, so that her soul was absorbed and all existence lost in it. On the place she met Lestie Vaudois on his way back, for, in order not to shorten his day's labour, he preferred interrupting his work, then beginning it again, so that he rang the Angelus to suit his own convenience. Besides, the ringing over a little earlier warned the lads of catechism hour. Already a few who had arrived were playing marbles on the stones of the cemetery. Others, astride the wall, swung their legs, kicking with their clogs the large nettles growing between the little enclosure and the newest graves. This was the only green spot. All the rest was but stones, always covered with a fine powder, despite the vestry broom. The children, in list shoes, ran about there as if it were an enclosure made for them. The shouts of their voices could be heard through the humming of the bell. This grew less and less with the swinging of the great rope that, hanging from the top of the belfry, dragged its end to the ground. Swallows flitted to and fro, uttering little cries, cut the air with the edge of their wings, and swiftly returned to their yellow nests under the tiles of the coping. At the end of the church a lamp was burning, the wick of a nightlight in a glass hung up. Its light, from a distance, looked like a white stain trembling in the oil. 
A long ray of the sun fell across the nave and seemed to darken the lower sides and the corners. "'Where is the curé?' asked Madame Bovary of one of the lads, who was amusing himself by shaking a swivel in a hole too large for it. "'He's just coming,' he answered. And in fact the door of the presbytery grated. Abbe Bourissien appeared. The children, pell-mell, fled into the church. "'These young scamps,' murmured the priest, "'always the same.' Then, picking up a catechism all in rags that he had struck with his foot, they respect nothing. But as soon as he caught sight of Madame Bovary, Excuse me, he said, I did not recognise you. He thrust the catechism into his pocket and stopped short, balancing the heavy vestry key between his two fingers. The light of the setting sun that fell full upon his face paled the lasting of his cassock, shiny at the elbows, unravelled at the hem. Grease and tobacco stains followed along his broad chest the lines of the buttons, and grew more numerous the farther they were from his neckcloth, in which the massive folds of his red chin rested. This was dotted with yellow spots that disappeared beneath the coarse hair of his greyish beard. He had just dined, and was breathing noisily. "'How are you?' he added. "'Not well,' replied Emma. "'I am ill.' "'Well, and so am I,' answered the priest. "'These first warm days weaken one most remarkably, don't they? "'But, after all, we are born to suffer, as St. Paul says. "'What does Monsieur Bovary think of it?' "'Hey,' she said, with a gesture of contempt. "'What?' replied the good fellow, quite astonished. "'Doesn't he prescribe something for you?' "'Ah,' said Emma, "'it is no earthly remedy I need.' But the curé, from time to time, looked into the church where the kneeling boys were shouldering one another and tumbling over like packs of cards. "'I should like to know,' she went on. "'You look out, Riberday,' cried the priest in an angry voice. "'I'll warm your ears, you wimp!' He turned to Emma. "'He's Boudet, the carpenter's son. His parents are well off and let him do just as he pleases. Yet he could learn quickly if he would, for he's very sharp.' And so sometimes for a joke I call him Riboudet, like the road one takes to go to Marom, and I even say, Mon Riboudet. Ha <laughs> ha, Mon Riboudet. The other day I repeated that just to Monseigneur, and he laughed at it. He condescended to laugh at it. And how is Monsieur Bovary? She seemed not to hear him, and he went on, Always very busy, no doubt, for he and I are certainly the busiest people in the parish. But he is doctor of the body, he added with a thick laugh, and I of the soul. She fixed her pleading eyes upon the priest. Yes, she said, you solace all sorrows. Ah, don't talk to me of it, Madame Bovary. This morning I had to go to Bar Diovia for a cow that was ill. They thought it was under a spell. All their cows, I don't know how it is, but pardon me. Longamar and Boudet, bless me, will you leave off? And with a bound he ran into the church. The boys were just then clustering round the large desk, climbing over the precentor's footstool, opening the missal, and others on tiptoe were just about to venture into the confessional. But the priest suddenly distributed a shower of cuffs among them. Seizing them by the collars of their coats, he lifted them from the ground and deposited them on their knees on the stones of the choir, firmly, as if he meant planting them there. Yes, he said when he returned to Emma, unfolding his large cotton handkerchief, 
one corner of which he put between his teeth. Farmers are much to be pitied. Others too, she replied. Assuredly, town labourers, for example. It is not they. Pardon, I have there known poor mothers of families, virtuous women, I assure you, real saints who wanted even bread. But those, replied Emma, and the corners of her mouth twitched as she spoke, those, Monsieur le Curé, who have bread and have no fire in the winter, said the priest. Oh, what does that matter? What? What does it matter? It seems to me that when one has firing and food, for after all, my God, my God, she sighed. It is indigestion, no doubt. You must get home, Madame Bovary. Drink a little tea, that will strengthen you, or else a glass of fresh water with a little moist sugar. Why? And she looked like one awakening from a dream. Well, you see, you were putting your hand to your forehead. I thought you felt faint. Then, bethinking himself, But you were asking me for something. What was it? I really don't remember. I, nothing, nothing, repeated Emma and the glance she cast round her slowly fell upon the old man in the cassock. They looked at one another, face to face, without speaking. "'Then, Madame Bovary,' he said at last, "'excuse me, but duty first, you know. I must look after my good-for-nothings. The First Communion will soon be upon us, and I fear we shall be behind after all. So after Ascension Day I keep them rector, an extra hour every Wednesday.' Poor children, one cannot lead them too soon into the path of the Lord, as, moreover, he has himself recommended us to do by the mouth of his divine Son. Good health to you, madam. My respects to your husband. And he went into the church, making a genuflection as soon as he reached the door. Emma saw him disappear between the double row of forms, walking with a heavy tread, his head a little bent over his shoulder, and with his two hands half open behind him. Then she turned on her heel, all of one piece, like a statue on a pivot, and went homewards. But the loud voice of the priest, the clear voices of the boys, still reached her ears and went on behind her. Are you a Christian? Yes, I am a Christian. What is a Christian? He who, being baptised, baptised, baptised. She went up the steps of the staircase, holding on to the banisters, and when she was in her room threw herself into an armchair. The whitish light of the window panes fell with soft undulations. The furniture in its place seemed to have become more immobile and to lose itself in the shadow as in an ocean of darkness. The fire was out. The clock went on ticking, and Emma vaguely marvelled at this calm of all things while within herself was such tumult. But little Berta was there between the window and the work-table, tottering on her knitted shoes and trying to come to her mother to catch hold of the end of her apron-strings. "'Leave me alone,' said the latter, putting her from her with her hand. The little girl soon came up closer against her knees, and, leaning on them with her arms, she looked up with her large blue eyes, while a small thread of pure saliva dribbled from her lips onto the silk apron. "'Leave me alone,' repeated the young woman quite irritably. Her face frightened the child, who began to scream. "'Will you leave me alone?' she said, pushing her with her elbow. Berta fell at the foot of the drawers against the brass handle, cutting her cheek, which began to bleed, against it. 
Madame Bovary sprang to lift her up, broke the bell-rope, called for the servant with all her might, and she was just going to curse herself when Charles appeared. It was the dinner hour. He had come home. "'Look, dear,' said Emma, with a calm voice. The little one fell down while she was playing, and has hurt herself. Charles reassured her the case was not a serious one, and he went for some sticking-plaster. Madame Bovary did not go downstairs to the dining-room. She wished to remain alone to look after the child. Then, watching her sleep, the little anxiety she felt gradually wore off, and she seemed very stupid to herself, and very good to have been so worried just now at so little. Berta, in fact, no longer sobbed. Her breathing now imperceptibly raised the cotton covering. Big tears lay in the corner of the half-closed eyelids, through whose lashes one could see two pale, sunken pupils. The plaster stuck on her cheek drew the skin obliquely. It is very strange, thought Emma, how ugly this child is. When, at eleven o'clock, Charles came back from the chemist's shop, whither he had gone after dinner to return the remainder of the sticking plaster, he found his wife standing by the cradle. "'I assure you it's nothing,' he said, kissing her on the forehead. "'Don't worry, my poor darling. You'll make yourself ill.' He had stayed a long time at the chemist's. Although he had not seemed much moved, Homais, nevertheless, had exerted himself to buoy him up, to keep up his spirits. Then they had talked of the various dangers that threatened childhood, of the carelessness of servants.' Madame Homain knew something of it, having still upon her chest the marks left by a basin full of soup that a cook had formerly dropped on her pinafore, and her good parents took no end of trouble for her. The knives were not sharpened, nor the floors waxed. There were iron gratings to the windows, and strong bars across the fireplace. The little Homais, in spite of their spirit, could not stir without someone watching them. At the slightest cold, their father stuffed them with pectorals, and until they were turned four, they all, without pity, had to wear wadded head protectors. This, it is true, was a fancy of Madame Homais. Her husband was inwardly afflicted at it, fearing the possible consequences of such compression to the intellectual organs. He even went so far as to say to her, Do you want to make caribs or botocudos off them? Charles, however, had several times tried to interrupt the conversation. I should like to speak to you, he had whispered in the clerk's ear, who went upstairs in front of him. Can he suspect anything? Leon asked himself. His heart beat and he racked his brain with surmises. At last, Charles, having shut the door, asked him to see himself what would be the price at Rouen of a fine daguerreotype. It was a sentimental surprise he intended for his wife, a delicate attention, his portrait in a frock coat. But he wanted first to know how much it would be. The inquiries would not put Monsieur Léon out, since he went to town almost every week. Why? Monsieur Homais suspected some young man's affair at the bottom of it, an intrigue. But he was mistaken. Léon was after no love-making. He was sadder than ever, as Madame Lefrancois saw from the amount of food he left on his plate. To find out more about it, she questioned the tax collector. Binet answered roughly that he wasn't paid by the police. All the same, his companion seemed very strange to him, for Léon often threw himself back in his chair and, stretching out his arms, complained vaguely of life. 
It isn't because you don't take enough recreation, said the collector. What recreation? If I were you, I'd have a lathe. But I don't know how to turn, answered the clerk. Ah, that's true, said the other, rubbing his chin with an air of mingled contempt and satisfaction. Leon was weary of loving without any result. Moreover, he was beginning to feel that depression caused by the repetition of the same kind of life when no interest inspires and no hope sustains it. He was so bored with Yonville and its inhabitants that the sight of certain persons, of certain houses, irritated him beyond endurance, and the chemist, good fellow though he was, was becoming absolutely unbearable to him. Yet the prospect of a new condition of life frightened as much as it seduced him. This apprehension soon changed into impatience, and then Paris from afar sounded its fanfare of masked balls with the laugh of grisettes. As he was to finish reading there, why not set out at once? What prevented him? And he began making home preparations. He arranged his occupations beforehand. He furnished in his head an apartment. He would lead an artist's life there. He would take lessons on the guitar. He would have a dressing gown, a basque cap, blue velvet slippers. He even already was admiring two crossed foils over his chimney-piece with a death's head on the guitar above them. The difficulty was the consent of his mother. Nothing, however, seemed more reasonable. Even his employer advised him to go to some other chambers where he could advance more rapidly. Taking a middle course then, Léon looked for some place as second clerk at Rouen, found none and at last wrote his mother a long letter full of details in which he set forth the reasons for going to live at Paris immediately. She consented. He did not hurry. Every day for a month Hiver carried boxes, valises, parcels for him from Yonville to Rouen and from Rouen to Yonville, and when Léon had packed up his wardrobe, had his three armchairs restuffed, bought a stock of neckties, in a word, had made more preparations than for a voyage around the world, he put it off from week to week until he received a second letter from his mother urging him to leave since he wanted to pass his examination before the vacation. When the moment for the farewells had come, Madame Homais wept, Justin sobbed. Homais, as a man of nerve, concealed his emotion. He wished to carry his friend's overcoat himself as far as the gate of the notary who was taking Léon to Rouen in his carriage. The latter had just time to bid farewell to Monsieur Bovary. When he reached the head of the stairs, he stopped. He was so out of breath. As he came in, Madame Bovary arose hurriedly. "'It is I again,' said Léon. "'I was sure of it.' She bit her lips, and a rush of blood flowing under her skin made her red from the roots of her hair to the top of her collar. She remained standing, leaning with her shoulder against the wainscot. "'The doctor is not here,' he went on. "'He is out,' she repeated. "'He is out.' Then there was silence. They looked at one another, and their thoughts, confounded in the same agony, clung close together like two throbbing breasts. "'I should like to kiss Berta,' said Léon. Emma went down a few steps and called Felicité. He threw one long look around him that took in the walls, the decorations, the fireplace, as if to penetrate everything, carry away everything. But 
she returned and the servant brought berta who was swinging a windmill roof downwards at the end of a string Léon kissed her several times on the neck. "'Good-bye, poor child. Good-bye, dear little one. Good-bye.' And he gave her back to her mother. "'Take her away,' she said. They remained alone, Madame Bovary, her back turned, her face pressed against a window-pane. Léon held his cap in his hand, knocking it softly against his thigh. "'It's going to rain,' said Emma. I have a cloak, he answered. Ah. She turned around, her chin lowered, her forehead bent forward. The light fell on it as on a piece of marble to the curve of the eyebrows, without once being able to guess what Emma was seeing on the horizon or what she was thinking within herself. Well, good-bye, he sighed. She raised her head with a quick movement. Yes, good-bye, go. They advanced towards each other. He held out his hand. She hesitated. In the English fashion, then, she said, giving her own hand wholly to him and forcing a laugh. Léon felt it between his fingers, and the very essence of all his being seemed to pass down into that moist palm. Then he opened his hand. Their eyes met again, and he disappeared. When he reached the marketplace, he stopped and hid behind a pillar to look for the last time at this white house with the four green blinds. He thought he saw a shadow behind the window in the room, but the curtain, sliding along the pole as though no one were touching it, slowly opened its long oblique folds that spread out with a single movement, and thus hung straight and motionless as a plaster wall. Léon set off running. From afar he saw his employer's gig in the road, and by it a man in a coarse apron holding the horse. Homais and Monsieur Guillemin were talking. They were waiting for him. "'Embrace me,' said the druggist, with tears in his eyes. "'Here is your coat, my good friend. Mind the cold. Take care of yourself. Look after yourself.' "'Come, Léon, jump in,' said the notary." Homais bent over the splashboard, and in a voice broken by sobs uttered these three sad words. A pleasant journey. Good night, said Monsieur Guillaume. Give him his head. They set out, and Homais went back. Madame Bovary had opened her window overlooking the garden and watched the clouds. They gathered around the sunset on the side of Rouen and then swiftly rolled back their black columns, behind which the great rays of the sun looked out like the golden arrows of a suspended trophy, while the rest of the empty heavens was white as porcelain. But a gust of wind bowed the poplars, and suddenly the rain fell. It pattered against the green leaves. Then the sun reappeared. The hens clucked, sparrows shook their wings in the damp thickets, and the pools of water on the gravel as they flowed away carried off the pink flowers of an acacia. Ah, oh, how far off he must be already, she thought. Monsieur Homais, as usual, came at half-past six during dinner. Well, said he, so we've sent off our young friend. So it seems, replied the doctor, then turning on his chair. Any news at home? Nothing much. Only my wife was a little moved this afternoon. You know, women. And nothing upsets them, especially my wife. And we should be wrong to object to that, since their nervous organisation is much more malleable than ours. 
Poor Léon, said Charles, how will he live at Paris? Will he get used to it? Madame Bovary sighed. Get along, said the chemist, smacking his lips. The outings at restaurants, the masked bowls, the champagne, all that will be jolly enough, I assure you. I don't think he'll go wrong, objected Bovary. Nor do I, said Monsieur Homais quickly, although he'll have to do like the rest for fear of passing for a Jesuit. And you don't know what a life those dogs lead in the Latin quarter with actresses. Besides, students are thought a great deal of in Paris, provided they have a few accomplishments they're received in the best society. There are even ladies of the Faubourg Saint-Germain who fall in love with them, which subsequently furnishes them opportunities for making very good matches. But, said the doctor, I fear for him that down there... You're right, interrupted the chemist, that is the reverse of the medal. And one is constantly obliged to keep one's hand in one's pocket there. Thus we will suppose you are in a public garden. An individual presents himself, well-dressed, even wearing an order, and whom you would take for a diplomatist. He approaches you, he insinuates himself, offers you a pinch of snuff, or picks up your hat. Then you become more intimate. He takes you to a cafe, invites you to his country house, introduces you between two drinks to all sorts of people, and three-fourths of the time it's only to plunder your watch or lead you into some pernicious step. That is true, said Charles, but I was thinking especially of illnesses, of typhoid fever, for example, that attacks students from the provinces. Emma shuddered. Because of the change of regimen, continued the chemist, and of the perturbation that results therefrom in the whole system. And then the waters at Paris, don't you know? The dishes at restaurants, all the spiced food, end by heating the blood, and are not worth, whatever people may say of them, a good soup. For my own part, I have always preferred plain living. It is much more healthy. So when I was studying pharmacy at Rouen, I boarded in a boarding house. I dined with the professors. And thus he went on, expounding his opinions generally and his personal likings, until Justin came to fetch him for a mulled egg that was wanted. Not a moment's peace, he cried, always at it. I can't go out for a minute. Like a plough-horse, I have always to be moiling and toiling. What drudgery! Then when he was at the door, By the way, do you know the news? What news? That it's very likely, Homme went on, raising his eyebrows and assuming one of his most serious expression, that the agricultural meeting of the Seine Inferieur will be held this year at Yonville-l'Abbaye. The rumour, at all events, is going the round. This morning the paper alluded to it. It would be of the utmost importance to our district, but we'll talk it over later on. I can see, thank you, Justin has the lantern. End of part two, chapter six. Part two, chapter seven of Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert, translated by Eleanor Marx Aveling. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part two, chapter seven. The next day was a dreary one for Emma. Everything seemed to her enveloped in a black atmosphere floating confusedly over the exterior of things, and sorrow was engulfed within her soul with soft shrieks such as the winter wind makes in ruined castles. 
It was that reverie which we give to things that will not return, the lassitude that seizes you after everything was done, that pain in fine that the interruption of every wanted movement, the sudden cessation of any prolonged vibration, brings on. As on the return from Vaubiessard, when the quadrilles were running in her head, she was full of a gloomy melancholy, of a numb despair. Léon reappeared, taller, handsomer, more charming, more vague. Though separated from her, he had not left her. He was there, and the walls of the house seemed to hold his shadow. She could not detach her eyes from the carpet where he had walked, from those empty chairs where he had sat. The river still flowed on and slowly drove its ripples along the slippery banks. They had often walked there to the murmur of the waves over the moss-covered pebbles. How bright the sun had been! What happy afternoons they had seen alone in the shade at the end of the garden! He read aloud, bareheaded, sitting on a footstool of dry sticks, the fresh wind of the meadow set trembling the leaves of the book and the nasturtiums of the arbour. Ah, he was gone, the only charm of her life, the only possible hope of joy. Why had she not seized this happiness when it came to her? Why not have kept hold of it with both hands, with both knees, when it was about to flee from her? And she cursed herself for not having loved Léon. She thirsted for his lips. The wish took possession of her to run after and rejoin him, throw herself into his arms and say to him, It is I, I am yours. But Emma recoiled beforehand at the difficulties of the enterprise, and her desires, increased by regret, became only the more acute. Henceforth the memory of Léon was the centre of her boredom. It burnt there more brightly than the fire travellers have left on the snow of a Russian steppe. She sprang towards him, she pressed against him, she stirred carefully the dying embers, sought all around her anything that could revive it and the most distant reminiscences, like the most immediate occasions, what she experienced as well as what she imagined, her voluptuous desires that were unsatisfied, her projects of happiness that crackled in the wind like dead boughs, her sterile virtue, her lost hopes, the domestic tete-a-tete. She gathered it all up, took everything, and made it all serve as fuel for her melancholy. The flames, however, subsided, either because the supply had exhausted itself or because it had been piled up too much. Love, little by little, was quelled by absence, regret stifled beneath habit, and this incendiary light that had empurpled her pale sky was overspread and faded by degrees. In the supineness of her conscience she even took her repugnance towards her husband for aspirations towards her lover, the burning of hate for the warmth of tenderness. But as the tempest still raged and as passion burnt itself down to the very cinders, and no help came, no sun rose, there was night on all sides, and she was lost in the terrible cold that pierced her. Then the evil days of Tostas began again. She thought herself now far more unhappy, for she had the experience of grief with the certainty that it would not end. 
a woman who had laid on herself such sacrifices could well allow herself certain whims. She bought a gothic prie-dieu, and in a month spent fourteen francs on lemons for polishing her nails. She wrote to Rouen for a blue cashmere gown. She chose one of Lerreux's finest scarves and wore it knotted around her waist over her dressing gown, and with closed blinds and a book in her hand she lay stretched out on a couch in this garb. She often changed her coiffure. She did her hair a la chouinaise, in flowing curls, in plaited coils. She parted it on one side and rolled it under like a man's. She wanted to learn Italian. She bought dictionaries, a grammar, and a supply of white paper. She tried serious reading, history, and philosophy. Sometimes in the night Charles woke up with a start, thinking he was being called to a patient. I'm coming, he stammered, and it was the noise of a match Emma had struck to relight the lamp. But her reading fared like her piece of embroidery, all of which, only just begun, filled her cupboard. She took it up, left it, passed on to other books. She had attacks in which she could easily have been driven to commit any folly. She maintained one day, in opposition to her husband, that she could drink off a large glass of brandy, and as Charles was stupid enough to dare her to, she swallowed the brandy to the last drop. In spite of her vapourish airs, as the housewives of Yonville called them, Emma, all the same, never seemed gay and usually she had at the corners of her mouth that immobile contraction that puckers the faces of old maids and those of men whose ambition has failed. She was pale all over, white as a sheet. The skin of her nose was drawn at the nostrils. Her eyes looked at you vaguely. After discovering three grey hairs on her temples, she talked much of her old age. She often fainted. One day she even spat blood, and as Charles fussed around her, showing his anxiety, Bah! she answered, what does it matter? Charles fled to his study and wept there, both his elbows on the table, sitting in an armchair at his bureau under the phrenological head. Then he wrote to his mother, begging her to come, and they had many long consultations together on the subject of Emma. What should they decide? What was to be done, since she rejected all medical treatment? Do you know what your wife wants, replied Madame Bovary, senior. She wants to be forced to occupy herself with some manual work. If she were obliged, like so many others, to earn her living, she wouldn't have these vapours that come to her from a lot of ideas she stuffs into her head and from the idleness in which she lives. Yet she is always busy, said Charles. Ah, oh, always busy at what? Reading novels, bad books, works against religion, and in which they mock at priests in speeches taken from Voltaire? But all that leads you far astray, my poor child. Anyone who has no religion always ends by turning out badly. So it was decided to stop Emma reading novels. The enterprise did not seem easy. The good lady undertook it. She was, when she passed through Rouen, to go herself to the lending library and represent that Emma had discontinued her subscription. Would they not have a right to apply to the police if the librarian persisted all the same in his poisonous trade? The farewells of mother and daughter-in-law were cold. 
During the three weeks that they had been together, they had not exchanged half a dozen words, apart from the inquiries and phrases when they met at table and in the evening before going to bed. Madame Bovary left on a Wednesday, the market day at Yonville. The place since morning had been blocked by a row of carts, which on end and their shafts in the air spread all along the line of houses from the church to the inn. On the other side there were canvas booths where cotton checks, blankets and woollen stockings were sold, together with harness for horses and packets of blue ribbon whose ends fluttered in the wind. The coarse hardware was spread out on the ground between pyramids of eggs and hampers of cheeses from which sticky straw stuck out. Near the corn machines, clucking hens passed their necks through the bars of flat cages. The people, crowding in the same place and unwilling to move thence, sometimes threatened to smash the shop front of the chemist. On Wednesdays his shop was never empty and the people pushed in less to buy drugs than for consultations. So great was Homais's reputation in the neighbouring villages. His robust aplomb had fascinated the rustics. They considered him a greater doctor than all the doctors. Emma was leaning out at the window. She was often there. The window in the provinces replaces the theatre and the promenade. She was amusing herself with watching the crowd of boors when she saw a gentleman in a green velvet coat. He had on yellow gloves, although he wore heavy gaiters. He was coming towards the doctor's house, followed by a peasant walking with a bent head and quite a thoughtful air. "'Can I see the doctor?' he asked Justin, who was talking on the doorsteps with Felicité and taking him for a servant of the house. "'Tell him that Monsieur Rudolphe Boulanger of La Huchette is here.' It was not from territorial vanity that the new arrival added of La Huchette to his name, but to make himself the better known. La Huchette, in fact, was an estate near Yonville, where he had just bought the chateau and two farms that he cultivated himself, without, however, troubling very much about them. He lived as a bachelor, and was supposed to have at least fifteen thousand francs a year. Charles came into the room. Monsieur Boulanger introduced his man, who wanted to be bled because he felt a tingling all over. "'That'll purge me,' he urged as an objection to all reasoning. So Bovary ordered a bandage and a basin and asked Justin to hold it. Then, addressing the peasant, who was already pale, "'Don't be afraid, my lad.' "'No, no, sir,' said the other. "'Get on.' And, with an air of bravado, he held out his great arm. At the prick of the lancet the blood spurted out, splashing against the looking-glass. "'Hold the basin nearer,' exclaimed Charles. Law, said the peasant, one would swear it was a little fountain flowing. How red my blood is. That's a good sign, isn't it? Sometimes, answered the doctor, one feels nothing at first, and then syncope sets in, and more especially with people of strong constitution like this man. At these words the rustic let go the lancet case he was twisting between his fingers. A shudder of his shoulders made the chair back creak. His hat fell off. I thought as much, said Bovary, pressing his finger on the vein. The basin was beginning to tremble in Justin's hands. His knees shook. He turned pale. Emma! Emma! called Charles. With one bound she came down the staircase. Some vinegar! he cried. Oh dear! Two at once! And in his emotion he could hardly put on the compress. 
It is nothing, said Monsieur Boulanger quietly, taking Justin in his arms. He seated him on the table with his back resting against the wall. Madame Bovary began taking off his cravat. The strings of his shirt had got into a knot, and she was for some minutes moving her light fingers about the young fellow's neck. Then she poured some vinegar on her cambric handkerchief. She moistened his temples with little dabs, and then blew upon them softly. The ploughman revived, but Justin's syncope still lasted, and his eyeballs disappeared in the pale sclerotics like blue flowers in milk. "'We must hide this from him,' said Charles. Madame Bovary took the basin to put it under the table. With the movement she made in bending down, her dress, it was a summer dress with four flounces, yellow, long in the waist and wide in the skirt, spread out around her on the flags of the room. And as Emma, stooping, staggered a little as she stretched out her arms, the stuff here and there gave with the inflections of her bust. Then she went to fetch a bottle of water, and she was melting some pieces of sugar when the chemist arrived. The servant had been to fetch him in the tumult. Seeing his pupil's eyes staring, he drew a long breath, then going around him, he looked at him from head to foot. Fool, he said, really, a little fool, a fool in four letters. A phlebotomy's a big affair, isn't it? And a fellow who isn't afraid of anything, a kind of squirrel just as he is, who climbs to vertiginous heights to shake down nuts. Oh, yes, you just talk to me, boast about yourself. Here's a fine fitness for practising pharmacy later on, for under serious circumstances you may be called before the tribunals in order to enlighten the minds of the magistrates, and you would have to keep your head then to reason, show yourself a man, or else pass for an imbecile. Justin did not answer. The chemist went on. Who asked you to come? You're always pestering the doctor and madame. On Wednesday, moreover, your presence is indispensable to me. There are now twenty people in the shop. I left everything because of the interest I take in you. Come, get along, sharp, wait for me, and keep an eye on the jars. When Justin, who was rearranging his dress, had gone, they talked for a little while about fainting fits. Madame Bovary had never fainted. That is extraordinary for a lady, said Monsieur Boulanger, but some people are very susceptible. Thus, in a duel, I have seen a second lose consciousness at the mere sound of the loading of pistols. For my part, said the chemist, the sight of other people's blood doesn't affect me at all, but the mere thought of my own flowing would make me faint if I reflected upon it too much. Monsieur Boulanger, however, dismissed his servant, advising him to calm himself since his fancy was over. It procured me the advantage of making your acquaintance, he added, and he looked at Emma as he said this. Then he put three francs on the corner of the table, bowed negligently, and went out. He was soon on the other side of the river. This was his way back to La Huchette, and Emma saw him in the meadow, walking under the poplars, slackening his pace now and then as one who reflects. She is very pretty, he said to himself. She is very pretty, this doctor's wife. Fine teeth, black eyes, a dainty foot, a figure like a Parisienne's. Where the devil does she come from? Wherever did that fat fellow pick her up? Monsieur Rudolph Boulanger was thirty-four. He was of brutal temperament and intelligent perspicacity, having, moreover, had much to do with women and knowing them well. 
This one had seemed pretty to him, so he was thinking about her and her husband. I think he is very stupid. She is tired of him, no doubt. He has dirty nails and hasn't shaved for three days. While he is trotting after his patient, she sits there botching socks, and she gets bored. She would like to live in town and dance polkas every evening. Poor little woman. She is gasping after love like a carp after water on a kitchen table. With three words of gallantry, she'd adore you, I'm sure of it. She'd be tender, charming. Yes, but how to get rid of her afterwards. Then the difficulties of love-making, seen in the distance, made him, by contrast, think of his mistress. She was an actress at Rouen, whom he kept, and when he had pondered over this image, with which, even in resemblance, he was satiated, Ah, Madame Bovary, he thought, is much prettier, especially fresher. Virginie is decidedly beginning to grow fat. She is so finicky about her pleasures, and besides, she has a mania for prawns. The fields were empty, and around him Rodolphe only heard the regular beating of the grass striking against his boots, with a cry of the grasshopper hidden at a distance among the oats. He again saw Emma in her room, dressed as he had seen her, and he undressed her. Oh, I will have her, he cried, striking a blow with his stick at a clod in front of him. And he at once began to consider the political part of the enterprise. He asked himself, Where shall we meet? By what means? We shall always be having the brat on our hands and the servant, the neighbours and husband, all sorts of worries. Sure, one would lose too much time over it. Then he resumed, She really has eyes that pierce one's heart like a gimlet. And that pale complexion. I adore pale women. When he reached the top of the Argay Hills, he had made up his mind. It's only finding opportunities. Well, I will call in now and then. I'll send them venison, poultry. I'll have myself bled if need be. We shall become friends. I'll invite them to my place. By Jove, added he, there's the agricultural show coming on. She'll be there. I shall see her. We'll begin boldly, for that's the surest way. End of part two, chapter seven. Part two, chapter eight of Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert, translated by Eleanor Marx Averling. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part two, chapter eight. At last it came, the famous agricultural show. On the morning of the solemnity, all the inhabitants at their doors were chatting over the preparations. The pediment of the town hall had been hung with garlands of ivy, a tent had been erected in a meadow for the banquet, and in the middle of the place, in front of the church, a kind of bombard was to announce the arrival of the prefect and the names of the successful farmers who had obtained prizes. The National Guard of Bouchy, there was none at Yonville, had come to join the corps of firemen, of whom Binet was captain. On that day he wore a collar even higher than usual, and, tightly buttoned in his tunic, his figure was so stiff and motionless that the whole vital portion of his person seemed to have descended into his legs, which rose in a cadence of set steps with a single movement. As there was some rivalry between the tax-collector and the colonel, 
both, to show off their talents, drilled their men separately. One saw the red epaulettes and the black breastplates pass and repass alternately. There was no end to it, and it constantly began again. There had never been such a display of pomp. Several citizens had scoured their houses the evening before. Tricoloured flags hung from half-open windows. All the public houses were full, and in the lovely weather the starched caps, the golden crosses and the coloured neckerchiefs seemed whiter than snow, shone in the sun, and relieved with the motley colours the sombre monotony of the frock coats and blue smocks. The neighbouring farmers' wives, when they got off their horses, pulled out the long pins that fastened around them their dresses, turned up for fear of mud, and the husbands, for their part, in order to save their hats, kept their handkerchiefs around them, holding one corner between their teeth. The crowd came into the main street from both ends of the village. People poured in from the lanes, the alleys, the houses, and from time to time one heard knockers banging against doors closing behind women with their gloves, who were going out to see the fate. What was most admired were two long lamp-posts covered with lanterns that flanked a platform on which the authorities were to sit. Besides this, there were, against the four columns of the town hall, four kinds of poles, each bearing a small standard of greenish cloth, embellished with inscriptions in gold letters. On one was written, To Commerce, on the other, To Agriculture, on the third, To Industry, and on the fourth, to the fine arts. But the jubilation that brightened all faces seemed to darken that of Madame Lefrancois, the innkeeper. Standing on her kitchen steps, she muttered to herself, What rubbish, what rubbish, with their canvas booth. Do they think the prefect will be glad to dine down there under a tent like a gypsy? They call all this fussing doing good to the place. Then it wasn't worthwhile sending to Neufchatel for the keeper of a cookshop. And for whom? For cowherds, tatterdemalions. The druggist was passing. He had on a frock coat, nankeen trousers, beaver shoes, and, for a wonder, a hat with a low crown. Your servant, excuse me, I'm in a hurry. And as the fat widow asked where he was going, it seems odd to you, doesn't it? I, who am always more cooped up in my laboratory than a man's rat in his cheese. What cheese? asked the landlady. Oh, nothing, nothing, Homais continued. I merely wish to convey to you, Madame Lefrancois, that I usually live at home like a recluse. Today, however, considering the circumstances, it is necessary. Oh, you're going down there, she said contemptuously. Yes, I am going, replied the druggist, astonished. Am I not a member of the consulting commission? Mere Francois looked at him for a few moments and ended by saying with a smile, That's another pair of shoes. But what does agriculture matter to you? Do you understand anything about it? Certainly I understand it, since I am a druggist, that is to say, a chemist. And the object of chemistry, Madame Lefrancois, being the knowledge of the reciprocal and molecular action of all natural bodies, it follows that agriculture is comprised within its domain. And, in fact, the composition of the manure, the fermentation of liquids, the analyses of gases, and the influence of miasmata, what, I ask you, is all this, if it isn't chemistry, pure and simple? The landlady did not answer. Armay went on. Do you think that to be an agriculturalist it is necessary to have tilled the earth or fattened fowls oneself? 
It is necessary rather to know the composition of the substances in question, the geological strata, the atmospheric actions, the quality of the soil, the minerals, the waters, the density of the different bodies, their capillarity and what not. And one must be master of all the principles of hygiene in order to direct, criticise the construction of buildings, the feeding of animals, the diet of domestics. And moreover, Madame Le Francois, one must know botany, be able to distinguish between plants, you understand, which are the wholesome and those that are deleterious, which are unproductive and which nutritive, if it is well to pull them up and re them there, to propagate some, destroy others. In brief, one must keep pace with science by means of pamphlets and public papers, be always on the alert to find out improvements. The landlady never took her eyes off the Café Francois, and the chemist went on, Would to God our agriculturalists were chemists, or that at least they would pay more attention to the councils of science. Thus, lately, I myself wrote a considerable tract, a memoir of over 72 pages, entitled Cider, Its Manufacture and Its Effects, together with some new reflections on the subject, that I sent to the Agricultural Society of Rouen, and which even procured me the honour of being received among its members, Section Agriculture, Class Pomological. Well, if my work had been given to the public, but the druggist stopped. Madame La Francois seemed so preoccupied. Just look at them, she said. It's past comprehension. Such a cook shop as that. And with a shrug of the shoulders that stretched out over her breast the stitches of her knitted bodice, she pointed with both hands at her rival's inn, whence songs were heard issuing. Well, it won't last long, she added. It'll be over before a week. Armay drew back with stupefaction. She came down three steps and whispered in his ear, What? You didn't know it? There is to be an execution in next week. It's Leroux who is selling him out. He has killed him with bills. What a terrible catastrophe, cried the druggist, who always found expression in harmony with all imaginable circumstances. Then the landlady began telling him the story that she had heard from Theodore, Monsieur Guillaume's servant, and although she detested Tellier, she blamed Leroux. He was a wheedler, a sneak. There, she said, look at him. He's in the market. He's bowing to Madame Bovary, who's got on a green bonnet. Why, he's taking Monsieur Boulanger's arm. Madame Bovary, exclaimed Homer, I must go at once and pay her my respects. Perhaps she'll be very glad to have a seat in the enclosure under the peristyle. And without heeding Madame Le Francois, who was calling him back to tell him more about it, the druggist walked off rapidly with a smile on his lips, with straight knees, bowing copiously to right and left, and taking up much room with the large tails of his frock coat that fluttered behind him in the wind. Rodolphe, having caught sight of him from afar, hurried on, but Madame Bovary lost her breath, so he walked more slowly, and, smiling at her, said in a rough tone, "'It's only to get away from that fat fellow, you know, the druggist.' She pressed his elbow, What's the meaning of that? he asked himself, and he looked at her out of the corner of his eyes. Her profile was so calm that one could guess nothing from it. It stood out in the light from the oval of her bonnet, with pale ribbons on it like the leaves of weeds. Her eyes, with their long curved lashes, looked straight before her, and though wide open, they seemed slightly puckered by the cheekbones because of the blood pulsing gently under the delicate skin.
a pink line ran along the partition between her nostrils. Her head was bent upon her shoulder, and the pearl tips of her white teeth were seen between her lips. Is she making fun of me, thought Rodolphe. Emma's gesture, however, had only been meant for a warning, for Monsieur Leroux was accompanying them and spoke now and again as if to enter into the conversation. What a superb day! Everybody is out! The wind is east! And neither Madame Bovary nor Rodolphe answered him, whilst at the slightest movement made by them he drew near, saying, I beg your pardon, and raised his hat. When they reached the farrier's house, instead of following the road up to the fence, Rodolphe suddenly turned down a path, drawing with him Madame Bovary. He called out, Good evening, Monsieur Leroux. See you again presently. <laughs> How you got rid of him, she said, laughing. Why he went on allow oneself to be intruded upon by others. And as today I have the happiness of being with you. Emma blushed. He did not finish his sentence. Then he talked of the fine weather and of the pleasure of walking on the grass. A few daisies had sprung up again. Here are some pretty Easter daisies, he said, and enough of them to furnish oracles to all the amorous maids in the place. He added, shall I pick some? What do you think? Are you in love? she asked, coughing a little. Hmm, hmm, who knows, answered Rodolphe. The meadow began to fill, and the housewives hustled you with their great umbrellas, their baskets and their babies. One had often to get out of the way of a long file of country folk, servant maids with blue stockings, flat shoes, silver rings, and who smelt of milk when one passed close to them. They walked along holding one another by the hand, and thus they spread over the whole field from the row of open trees to the banquet tent. But this was the examination time, and the farmers, one after the other, entered a kind of enclosure formed by a long cord supported on sticks. The beasts were there, their noses towards the cord, and making a confused line with their unequal rumps. Drowsy pigs were burrowing in the earth with their snouts. Calves were bleating, lambs baaing. The cows on knees folded in were stretching their bellies on the grass, slowly chewing the cud and blinking their heavy eyelids at the gnats that buzzed round them. Ploughmen with bare arms were holding by the halter prancing stallions that neighed with dilated nostrils looking towards the mares. These stood quietly, stretching out their heads and flowing manes, while their foals rested in their shadow, or now and then came and sucked them. And above the long undulation of these crowded animals, one saw some white mane rising in the wind like a wave, or some sharp horns sticking out, and the heads of men running about. Apart, outside the enclosure, a hundred paces off, was a large black bull, muzzled with an iron ring in its nostrils, and who moved no more than if he had been in bronze. A child in rags was holding him by a rope. Between the two lines, the committee men were walking with heavy steps, examining each animal, then consulting one another in a low voice. One, who seemed of more importance, now and then took notes in a book as he walked along. This was the president of the jury, Monsieur de Roseray de la Panville. As soon as he recognised Rodolphe, he came forward quickly and, smiling amiably, said, What, Monsieur Boulanger, you are deserting us. Rodolphe protested that he was just coming, but when the president had disappeared, 
Ma foi, said he, I shall not go. Your company is better than his. And while poking fun at the show, Rodolphe, to move about more easily, showed the gendarme his blue card, and even stopped now and then in front of some fine beast which Madame Bovary did not at all admire. He noticed this and began jeering at the Yonville ladies and their dresses. Then he apologised for the negligence of his own. He had that incongruity of common and elegant in which the habitually vulgar think they see the revelation of an eccentric existence, of the perturbations of sentiment, the tyrannies of art, and always a certain contempt for social conventions that seduces or exasperates them. Thus his cambric shirt with plaited cuffs was blown out by the wind in the opening of his waistcoat of grey ticking, and his broad-striped trousers disclosed at the ankle nankeen boots with patent leather gaiters. These were so polished that they reflected the grass. He trampled on horse's dung with them, one hand in the pocket of his jacket and his straw hat on one side. Besides, added he, when one lives in the country, it's waste of time, said Emma. That is true, replied Rodolphe, to think that not one of these people is capable of understanding even the cut of a coat. Then they talked about provincial mediocrity, of the lives it crushed, the illusions lost there. And I too, said Rodolphe, am drifting into depression. You, she said in astonishment, I thought you very light-hearted. Ah, yes, I seem so, because in the midst of the world I know how to wear the mask of a scoffer upon my face, and yet how many a time at the sight of a cemetery by moonlight have I not asked myself whether it were not better to join those sleeping there? Oh, and your friends, she said, do you not think of them? My friends? What friends? Have I any? Who cares for me? and he accompanied the last words with a kind of whistling of the lips. But they were obliged to separate from each other because of a great pile of chairs that a man was carrying behind them. He was so overladen with them that one could only see the tips of his wooden shoes and the ends of his two outstretched arms. It was Lestie Boudoir, the gravedigger, who was carrying the church chairs about amongst the people. Alive to all that concerned his interests, he had hit upon this means of turning the show to account, and his idea was succeeding, for he no longer knew which way to turn. In fact, the villagers, who were hot, quarrelled for these seats whose straw smelt of incense, and they leant against the thick backs, stained with the wax of candles, with a certain veneration. Madame Bovary again took Rodolphe's arm. He went on as if speaking to himself. Yes, I have missed so many things, always alone. Ah, if I had some aim in life, if I had met some love, if I had found someone. Oh, how I would have spent all the energy of which I am capable, surmounted everything, overcome everything. Yet it seems to me, said Emma, that you are not to be pitied. Ah, oh, you think so, said Rodolph. For, after all, she went on, you are free. She hesitated. Rich? Do not mock me, he replied. And she protested that she was not mocking him when the report of a cannon resounded. Immediately all began hustling one another pell-mell towards the village. It was a false alarm. The prefect seemed not to be coming, and the members of the jury felt much embarrassed, not knowing if they ought to begin the meeting or still wait. 
At last, at the end of the place, a large hired landau appeared, drawn by two thin horses, which a coachman in a white hat was whipping lustily. Binet had only just time to shout, Present arms, and the colonel to imitate him. All ran towards the enclosure, everyone pushed forward. A few even forgot their collars, but the equipage of the prefect seemed to anticipate the crowd, and the two yoked jades, traipsing in their harnesses, came up at a little trot in front of the peristyle of the town hall at the very moment when the National Guard and firemen deployed, beating drums and marking time. Present, shouted Binet. Halt, shouted the colonel. Left about much. And, after presenting arms, during which the clang of the band, letting loose, rang out like a brass kettle rolling downstairs, all the guns were lowered. Then was seen, stepping down from the carriage, a gentleman in a short coat with silver braiding, with bald brow, and wearing a tuft of hair at the back of his head, of a sallow complexion and the most benign appearance. His eyes, very large and covered by heavy lids, were half closed to look at the crowd, while at the same time he raised his sharp nose and forced a smile upon his sunken mouth. He recognised the mayor by his scarf, and explained to him that the prefect was not able to come. He himself was a councillor at the prefecture. Then he added a few apologies. Monsieur Tuvache answered them with compliments. The other confessed himself nervous, and they remained thus face to face, their foreheads almost touching, with the members of the jury all round, the municipal council, the notable personages, the national guard, and the crowd. The councillor, pressing his little cocked hat to his breast, repeated his bows, while Tuvache, bent like a bow, also smiled, stammered, and tried to say something, protested his devotion to the monarchy and the honour that was being done to Yonville. Hippolyte, the groom from the inn, took the head of the horses from the coachman, and limping along with his club foot, led them to the door of the lion door, where a number of peasants collected to look at the carriage. The drum beat, the howitzer thundered, and the gentlemen one by one mounted the platform, where they sat down in red Utrecht velvet armchairs that had been lent by Madame Duvache. All these people looked alike, their fair flabby faces somewhat tanned by the sun with a colour of sweet cider, and their puffy whiskers emerged from stiff collars kept up by white cravats with broad bows. All the waistcoats were of velvet, double-breasted. All the watches had at the end of a long ribbon an oval cornelian seal. Everyone rested his two hands on his thighs, carefully stretching the side of their trousers, whose unsponged glossy cloth shone more brilliantly than the leather of their heavy boots. The ladies of the company stood at the back, under the vestibule between the pillars, while the common herd was opposite, standing up or sitting on chairs. As a matter of fact, Lestie Baudois had brought thither all those that he had moved from the field, and he even kept running back every minute to fetch others from the church. He caused such confusion with this piece of business that one had great difficulty in getting to the small steps of the platform. I think, said Monsieur Leroux to the chemist who was passing to his place, that they ought to have put up two Venetian masts with something rather severe and rich for ornaments. It would have been a very pretty effect. To be sure, replied Homais, but what can you expect? The mayor took everything on his own shoulders. He hasn't much taste. Poor Tuvache, and he is even completely destitute of what is called the genius of art.
Rodolphe, meanwhile, with Madame Bovary, had gone up to the first floor of the town hall, to the council room, and, as it was empty, he declared that they could enjoy the sight there more comfortably. He fetched three stools from the round table under the busts of the monarch, and having carried them to one of the windows, they sat down by each other. There was commotion on the platform, long whisperings, much parleying. At last the councillor got up. They knew now that his name was Lieuvain, and in the crowd the name was passed from one to the other. After he had collated a few pages and bent over them to see better, he began. Gentlemen, may I be permitted, first of all, before addressing you on the object of our meeting today, and this sentiment will, I am sure, be shared by you all, may I be permitted, I say, to pay a tribute to the higher administration, to the government, to the monarch, gentlemen, our sovereign, to that beloved king to whom no branch of public or private prosperity is a matter of indifference, and who directs with a hand at once so firm and wise the chariot of the state amid the incessant perils of a stormy sea, knowing, moreover, how to make peace respected, as well as war, industry, commerce, agriculture, and the fine arts. I ought, said Rodolphe, to get back a little further. Why, said Emma, but at this moment the voice of the councillor rose to an extraordinary pitch. He declaimed, This is no longer the time, gentlemen, when civil discord ensanguined our public places, when the landlord, the businessman, the working man himself, falling asleep at night, lying down to peaceful sleep, trembled lest he should be awakened suddenly by the noise of incendiary toxins, when the most subversive doctrines audaciously sapped foundations. Well, someone down there might see me, Rodolphe resumed, then I should have to invent excuses for a fortnight, and with my bad reputation. Oh, you're slandering yourself, said Emma. No, it is dreadful, I assure you. But, gentlemen, continued the councillor, if, banishing from my memory the remembrance of these sad pictures, I carry my eyes back to the actual situation of our dear country, what do I see there? Everywhere commerce and the arts are flourishing. Everywhere new means of communication, like so many new arteries in the body of the state, establish within it new relations. Our great industrial centres have recovered all their activity. Religion more consolidated smiles in all hearts. Our ports are full, confidence is born again, and France breathes once more. Besides, added Rodolphe, perhaps from the world's point of view, they are right. How so? she asked. What, said he, do you not know that there are souls constantly tormented? They need by turns to dream and to act, the purest passions and the most turbulent joys, and thus they fling themselves into all sorts of fantasies, of follies. Then she looked at him as one looks at a traveller who has voyaged over strange lands, and went on, We have not even this distraction, we poor women. A sad distraction, for happiness isn't found in it. But is it ever found? she asked. Yes, one day it comes, he answered. And this is what you have understood, said the councillor. 
You farmers, agricultural labourers, you Pacific pioneers of a work that belongs wholly to civilization, you men of progress and morality, you have understood, I say, that political storms are even more redoubtable than atmospheric disturbances. It comes one day, repeated Rodolphe, one day suddenly, and when one is despairing of it, then the horizon expands. It is as if a voice cried, it is here. You feel the need of confiding the whole of your life, of giving everything, sacrificing everything to this being. There is no need for explanations. They understand one another. They have seen each other in dreams. And he looked at her. In fine, here it is, this treasure, so sought after, here before you. It glitters, it flashes, yet still one doubts. One does not believe it. One remains dazzled, as if one went out from darkness into light. And as he ended, Rodolphe suited the action to the word. He passed his hand over his face like a man seized with giddiness. Then he let it fall on Emma's. She took hers away. And who would be surprised at it, gentlemen? He only who is so blind, so plunged, I do not fear to say it, so plunged in the prejudices of another age as still to misunderstand the spirit of agricultural populations. Where indeed is to be found more patriotism than in the country? Greater devotion to the public welfare, more intelligence in a word. And, gentlemen, I do not mean that superficial intelligence, vain ornament of idle minds, but rather that profound and balanced intelligence that applies itself above all else to useful objects, thus contributing to the good of all, to the common amelioration and to the support of the state, born of respect for law and the practice of duty. Ah, oh, again, said Rodolphe, always duty. I am sick of the word. They are a lot of old blockheads in flannel vests and of old women with foot warmers and rosaries who constantly drone into our ears. Duty, duty. Ah, oh, by Jove, one's duty is to feel what is great, cherish the beautiful, and not accept all the conventions of society with the ignominy that it imposes upon us. Yet... Yet, objected Madame Bovary, no, no, why cry out against the passions? Are they not the one beautiful thing on the earth, the source of heroism, of enthusiasm, of poetry, music, the arts, of everything in a word? But one must, said Emma, to some extent bow to the opinion of the world and accept its moral code. Ah, but there are two, he replied, the small, the conventional, that of men, that which constantly changes, that brays out so loudly, that makes such a commotion here below, of the earth earthly, like the massive imbeciles you see down there. But the other, the eternal, that is about us and above, like the landscape that surrounds us, and the blue heavens that give us light. Monsieur Leuvin had just wiped his mouth with a pocket handkerchief. He continued, and what should I do here, gentlemen, pointing out to you the uses of agriculture? Who supplies our wants? Who provides our means of subsistence? Is it not the agriculturalist? 
the agriculturalist gentleman who's sowing with laboriously hand the fertile furrows of the country brings forth the corn, which being ground is made into a powder by means of ingenious machinery, comes out thence under the name of flour, and from thence transported to our cities is soon delivered at the bakers who makes it into food for poor and rich alike. Again, is it not the agriculturalist who fattens for our clothes his abundant flocks in the pastures? For how should we clothe ourselves, how nourish ourselves, without the agriculturalist? And gentlemen, is it even necessary to go so far for examples? Who has not frequently reflected on all the momentous things that we get out of that modest animal, the ornament of poultry yards that provides us at once with a soft pillow for our bed, with succulent flesh for our tables, and eggs. But I should never end if I were to enumerate one after the other all the different products which the earth, well cultivated like a generous mother, lavishes upon her children. Here it is the vine, elsewhere the apple tree for cider, there colts are farther on cheeses and flax. Gentlemen, let us not forget flax, which has made such great strides in late years, and to which I will more particularly call your attention. He had no need to call it, for all the mouths of the multitude were wide open, as if to drink in his words. Duvache, by his side, listened to him with staring eyes. Monsieur Desiree, from time to time, softly closed his eyelids, and farther on the chemist, with his son Napoleon between his knees, put his hand behind his ear in order not to lose a syllable. The chins of the other members of the jury went slowly up and down in their waistcoats in sign of approval. The firemen at the foot of the platform rested on their bayonets, and Binet, motionless, stood with outturned elbows, the point of his sabre in the air. Perhaps he could hear, but certainly he could see nothing because of the visor of his helmet that fell down on his nose. His lieutenant, the younger son of Monsieur Tuvage, had a bigger one, for his was enormous and shook on his head, and from it an end of his cotton scarf peeped out. He smiled beneath it with a perfectly infantine sweetness, and his pale little face, whence drops were running, wore an expression of enjoyment and sleepiness. The square as far as the houses was crowded with people. One saw folk leaning on their elbows at all the windows, others standing at doors, and Justin, in front of the chemist's shop, seemed quite transfixed by the sight of what he was looking at. In spite of the silence, Monsieur Liovin's voice was lost in the air. It reached you in fragments of phrases, and interrupted here and there by the creaking of chairs in the crowd. Then you suddenly heard the long bellowing of an ox, or else the bleating of the lambs, who answered one another at street corners. In fact, the cowherds and shepherds had driven their beasts thus far, and these lowed from time to time, while with their tongues they tore down some scraps of foliage that hung above their mouths. Rodolphe had drawn nearer to Emma, and said to her in a low voice, speaking rapidly, Does not this conspiracy of the world revolt you? Is there a single sentiment it does not condemn? The noblest instincts, the purest sympathies are persecuted, slandered, and if at length two poor souls do meet, all is so organised that they cannot blend together. Yet they will make the attempt, they will flutter their wings, they will call upon each other. Oh, no matter, 
sooner or later in six months ten years they will come together will love for fate has decreed it and they are born for the other his arms were folded across his knees and thus lifting his face towards emma close by her he looked fixedly at her she noticed in his eyes small golden lines radiating from black pupils she even smelt the perfume of the pomade that made his hair glossy then a faintness came over her. She recalled the Viscount who had waltzed with her at Vaubyessard, and his beard exhaled like this air an odour of vanilla and citron, and mechanically she half closed her eyes the better to breathe it in. But in making this movement as she leant back in her chair, she saw in the distance, right on the line of the horizon, the old diligence, the hirondelle, that was slowly descending the hill of Lure, dragging after it a long trail of dust. It was in this yellow carriage that Léon had so often come back to her, and by this route down there that he had gone forever. She fancied that she saw him opposite at his windows, then all grew confused, clouds gathered. It seemed to her that she was again turning in the waltz under the light of the lustres on the arm of the Viscount, and that Léon was not far away, that he was coming and yet all the time she was conscious of the scent of Rodolphe's head by her side. This sweetness of sensation pierced through her old desires, and these, like grains of sand under a gust of wind, eddied to and fro in the subtle breath of the perfume which suffused her soul. She opened wide her nostrils several times to drink in the freshness of the ivy round the capitals. She took off her gloves. She wiped her hands, then fanned her face with a handkerchief, while athwart the throbbing of her temple she heard the murmur of the crowd and the voice of the counsellor intoning his phrases. He said, Continue, persevere, listen neither to the suggestions of routine nor to the over-hasty counsels of a rash empiricism. Apply yourselves, above all, to the amelioration of the soil, to good manures, to the development of the equine, bovine, ovine and porcine races. Let these shows be to you pacific arenas where the victor in leaving it will hold forth a hand to the vanquished and will fraternise with him in the hope of better success. And you, aged servants, humble domestics, whose hard labour no government up to this day has taken into consideration, come hither to receive the reward of your silent virtues, and be assured that the state henceforward has its eye upon you, that it encourages you, protects you, that it will accede to your just demands, and alleviate as much as in it lies the burden of your painful sacrifices. Monsieur Lieuvain then sat down. Monsieur Dozeray's got up, beginning another speech. His was not perhaps so florid as that of the councillor, but it recommended itself by a more direct style, that is to say, by more special knowledge and more elevated considerations. Thus the praise of the government took up less space in it, religion and agriculture more. He showed in it the relation of these two, and how they had always contributed to civilization. Rodolphe, with Madame Bovary, was talking dreams, presentiments, magnetism. 
Going back to the cradle of society, the orator painted those fierce times when men lived on acorns in the heart of woods. Then they had left off the skins of beasts, had put on cloth, tilled the soil, planted the vine. Was this a good, and in this discovery was there not more of injury than of gain? Monsieur Dothere set himself this problem. From magnetism, little by little, Rodolphe had come to affinities, and while the president was citing Cincinnatus and his plough, Diocletian planting his cabbages, and the emperor of China inaugurating the year by the sowing of seed, the young man was explaining to the young woman that these irresistible attractions find their cause in some previous state of existence. Thus we, he said, why did we come to know one another? What chance willed it? It was because across the infinite, like two streams that flow but to unite, our special bents of mind had driven us towards each other. And he seized her hand. She did not withdraw it. For good farming, generally, cried the President. Just now, for example, when I went to your house, to Monsieur Bizarre of Quincampoix. Did you know I should accompany you? Seventy francs. A hundred times I wished to go, and I followed you. I remained. Manures! And I shall remain tonight, tomorrow, all other days, all my life. To Monsieur Caron of Argoy, a gold medal, for I have never in the society of any other person found so complete a charm. To Monsieur Pan of Givry Saint-Martin, and I shall carry away with me the remembrance of you for a merino ram. But you will forget me. I will pass away like a shadow to Monsieur Bellot of Notre Dame. Oh, no, I shall be something in your thought, in your life, shall I not? Foreseen races, prizes equal to Monsieur Lerice and Coulomberg, 60 francs. Rodolphe was pressing her hand, and he felt it all warm and quivering like a captive dove that wants to fly away. But whether she was trying to take it away, or whether she was answering his pressure, she made a movement with her fingers. He exclaimed, Oh, I thank you. You do not repulse me. You are good. You understand that I am yours. Let me look at you. Let me contemplate you. A gust of wind that blew in at the window ruffled the cloth on the table, and in the square below all the great caps of the peasant women were uplifted by it like the wings of white butterflies fluttering. The use of oil cakes, continued the president. He was hurrying on. Flemish manufacture flax growing drainage long leases domestic service. Rodolphe was no longer speaking. They looked at one another. A supreme desire made their dry lips tremble, and wearily, without an effort, their fingers intertwined. Catherine, he says, Elizabeth Larue of Sassatola Guerrier, for fifty years of service at the same farm, a silver medal, value twenty-five francs. Where is Catherine Larue? repeated the councillor. She did not present herself, and one could hear voices whispering, Go up! Don't be afraid. Oh, how stupid she is. Well, is she there? cried Tuvash. Yes, here she is. Then let her come up. Then there came forward on the platform a little old woman of timid bearing who seemed to shrink within her poor clothes. On her feet she wore heavy wooden clogs and from her hips hung a large blue apron. 
Her pale face, framed in a borderless cap, was more wrinkled than a withered russet apple, and from the sleeves of her red jacket looked out two large hands with knotty joints, the dust of barns, the potash of washing, the grease of wools, had so encrusted, roughened, hardened these that they seemed dirty, although they had been rinsed in clear water, and by dint of long service they remained half open, as if to bear humble witness for themselves of so much suffering endured. Something of monastic rigidity dignified her face. Nothing of sadness or of emotion weakened that pale look. In her constant living with animals she had caught their dumbness and their calm. It was the first time that she had found herself in the midst of so large a company, and inwardly scared by the flags, the drums, the gentlemen in frock-coats, and the order of the councillor, she stood motionless, not knowing whether to advance or run away, nor why the crowd was pushing her and the jury was smiling at her. Thus stood before these radiant bourgeois this half-century of servitude. "'Approach, approach, Catherine Nisse's Elizabeth Larue,' said the councillor, who had taken the list of prize-winners from the president, and, looking at the piece of paper and the old woman by turns, he repeated in a fatherly tone, "'Approach, approach!' "'Are you deaf?' said Tuvash, fidgeting in his armchair, and he began shouting in her ear, "'Fifty-four years of service! A silver medal! Twenty-five francs! For you!' Then. When she had her medal, she looked at it, and a smile of beatitude spread over her face, and as she walked away they could hear her muttering, I'll give it to our curé up home to say some masses for me. What fanaticism! exclaimed the chemist, leaning across to the notary. The meeting was over, the crowd dispersed. And now that the speeches had been read, each one fell back into his place again, and everything into the old grooves. The masters bullied the servants, and these struck the animals, indolent victors going back to the stalls, a green crown on their horns. The National Guards, however, had gone up to the first floor of the town hall with buns spitted on their bayonets, and the drummer of the battalion carried a basket with bottles. Madame Bovary took Rodolphe's arm. He saw her home. They separated at her door. Then he walked about alone in the meadow while he waited for the time of the banquet. The feast was long, noisy, ill-served. The guests were so crowded that they could hardly move their elbows, and the narrow planks used for forms almost broke down under their weight. They ate hugely. Each one stuffed himself on his own account. Sweat stood on every brow, and a whitish steam, like the vapour of a stream on an autumn morning, floated above the table between the hanging lamps. Rodolphe, leaning against the calico of the tent, was thinking so earnestly of Emma that he heard nothing. Behind him on the grass the servants were piling up the dirty plates. His neighbours were talking. He did not answer them. They filled his glass, and there was silence in his thoughts in spite of the growing noise. He was dreaming of what she had said, of the line of her lips, her face as in a magic mirror shone on the plate of the shakos, the folds of her gown fell along the walls, and days of love unrolled to all infinity before him in the vistas of the future. 
He saw her again in the evening during the fireworks, but she was with her husband, Madame Homme, and the druggist, who was worrying about the danger of stray rockets, and every moment he left the company to go and give some advice to Binet. The pyrotechnic pieces sent to Monsieur Tuvage had, through an excess of caution, been shut up in his cellar, and so the damp powder would not light, and the principal set-piece that was to represent a dragon biting his tail failed completely. Now and then a meagre Roman candle went off, then the gaping crowd sent up a shout that mingled with the cry of the women whose waists were being squeezed in the darkness. Emma silently nestled against Charles' shoulder, then, raising her chin, she watched the luminous rays of the rockets against the dark sky. Rodolphe gazed at her in the light of the burning lanterns. They went out one by one. The stars shone out. A few drops of rain began to fall. She knotted her fichu round her bare head. At this moment the councillor's carriage came out from the inn. His coachman, who was drunk, suddenly dozed off, and one could see from the distance above the hood between the two lanterns the mass of his body that swayed from right to left with the giving of the traces. Truly, said the druggist, one ought to proceed most rigorously against drunkenness. I should like to see written up weekly at the door of the town hall on a board ad hoc the names of all those who during the week got intoxicated on alcohol. Besides, with regard to statistics, one would thus have, as it were, public records that one could refer to in case of need. But excuse me. And he once more ran off to the captain. The latter was going back to see his lathe again. Perhaps you would not do ill, Homme said to him, to send one of your men, or to go yourself. Leave me alone, answered the tax collector. It's all right. Do not be uneasy, said the druggist, when he returned to his friends. Monsieur Binet has assured me that all precautions have been taken. No sparks have fallen, the pumps are full. Let us go to rest. Ma foi, I want it, said Madame Homme, yawning at large. But never mind, we've had a beautiful day for our fate. Rodolphe repeated in a low voice and with a tender look, Oh, yes, very beautiful. And having bowed to one another, they separated. Two days later, in the Final de Rouen, there was a long article on the show. Homais had composed it with verve the very next morning. Why these festoons, these flowers, these garlands? Whither hurries this crowd like the waves of a furious sea under the torrents of a tropical sun pouring its heat upon our heads? Then he had spoken of the condition of the peasants. Certainly the government was doing much, but not enough. Courage, he cried to it, a thousand reforms are indispensable. Let us accomplish them. Then, touching on the entry of the councillor, he did not forget the martial air of our militia, nor our most merry village maidens, nor the bold-headed old men like patriarchs who were there, and of whom some, the remnants of our phalanxes, still felt their hearts beat at the manly sound of the drums. He cited himself among the first of the members of the jury, and even called attention in a note to the fact that Monsieur Homais, the chemist, had sent a memoir on cider to the Agricultural Society. When he came to the distribution of the prizes, he painted the joy of the prize-winners in dithyrambic strophes. 
The father embraced the son, the brother, the brother, the husband, his consort. More than one showed his humble medal with pride, and no doubt when he got home to his good housewife, he hung it up weeping on the modest walls of his cot. About six o'clock a banquet prepared in the meadow of Monsieur Ligard brought together the principal personages of the fete. The greatest cordiality reigned here. Diverse toasts were proposed. Monsieur Liovin, the king, Monsieur Tuvache, the prefect, Monsieur Dothery, agriculture, Monsieur Homais, industry and the fine arts, those twin sisters, Monsieur Lapliche, progress. In the evening some brilliant fireworks on a sudden illumined the air. One would have called it a veritable kaleidoscope, a real operatic scene, and for a moment our little locality must have thought itself transported into the midst of a dream of the thousand and one nights. Let us state that no untoward event disturbed this family meeting. And he added, only the absence of the clergy was remarked. No doubt the priests understand progress in another fashion. Just as you please, messieurs, the followers of Loyola. End of part two, chapter eight.